Amen. Okay, so we come now to chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and uh, we begin with the expression, now in those days, and that's our time marker. It tells us that we're now in a different period of time, though Matthew doesn't tell us. It's going to become evident in the uh, in this chapter that we're, Jesus is now fully grown. We're uh, you know, just under 30 years further on from, from uh, the nativity. And he is now an adult, and we are going to see in this next chapter the inauguration of his public ministry. And that inauguration is done through John the Baptist. Here he is, and he shows up. In those days, John the Baptist came. John the Baptist, I think, uh, we often skim over him. He gets a little bit of short shrift. Um, I am reminded that in John's prologue, the prologue of John's gospel, in which in just 18 verses he deals with every single major theme that is contained within his gospel. It is the, the microcosm of everything he's going to say for the next uh, 20 or so chapters. Um, that there he mentions John the Baptist twice. John the Baptist is not any small figure in all of this, and I think when we understand our Old Testament a little bit better, uh, then we'll understand why. We will talk about him quite a bit the next few weeks and in other occasions as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew as he comes up multiple times. But he is coming and he is preaching in the wilderness. So at this point, this guy John, who is simply called the Baptist because that's what he's known for. It's kind of like Bob the Builder, but in a, in a sort of earlier times. He's, he's, he's doing the work of baptizing. And as he baptizes, what he's doing here is he's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, the wilderness is not a wilderness in the sense of, you know, rainforests or anything like that. You know, there's lots of different types of wilderness. But it's a kind of desert wilderness, very rocky in that area. Lots of uh, these dry uh, streams called wadis that... Uh, that uh, would be dry most of the year and then the rainy season would get quite dangerous. And uh, he went out and he began his work there and he began by preaching uh, to those on the fringes, so to speak. I sometimes wonder with with our church whether we're doing the same. You guys are the, the people on the fringes. You're the wilderness folk, perhaps, who are, who are here early on. But uh, here we are, and John is preaching in the wilderness, and now we're told in verse 2 the content of his message. And it's summarized for us quite nicely. The expression here is uh, found in the mouth of John the Baptist. We're going to see it a little bit later in chapter 4 and verse 17. Exactly the same phrase in the mouth of Jesus, and uh, also maybe a little bit further on in the lips of the disciples as well. And the message is this. And it's important that we understand this. It's a succinct, and therefore, um, it, sometimes these things contain a lot more than they initially seem, and this is no uh, exception to that. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? So, the statement here, let's break it down very carefully. The statement here is this. There's a command, and the command is, repent. That's it. There's the command. Repent. And then there's a reason given for that repentance. There's a reason given for that repentance. 
And we'll talk about that in a moment. First of all, let's look at the command. The command is to repent. Now the word repent is a word that in our circles is often misunderstood. And, and, and what we sometimes do is we go too far one way, and other times we go too far the other way. So let, let's kind of, let's point out what repentance isn't, and then maybe we can get a closer understanding of what it is. And this obviously, contextually, in the sense of the church context, um, follows on very nicely from what we were teaching last week at the baptism service. But repentance does not simply mean saying sorry, nor does it mean even being sorry. You can be incredibly regretful of something that you've done. You might wish that you had never done it. You might see the harm that your actions have caused, and you might regret the the harm that you have done. And there might be this just deep-set regret and sadness over your actions. These are all very good things to have. But it is not repentance. It is not repentance. And I think it's important that we know that when we are in relationship with other people. Being sorry simply isn't good enough. Spouses in marriage relationships especially would do well to know this. That if you some of you have hurt your spouse and you say, I'm really sorry, I wish I hadn't done that. Well, that's a great starting point, but you haven't crossed the threshold of repentance quite yet. On the other hand, people can go too far the other way and they can say, and I've heard this said multiple times by people. Well, you know, this person claimed that they repented and now they've done it again. So it clearly wasn't real repentance. Well... Praise God he doesn't hold us to those standards. Because we would all be in all sorts of trouble. Repentance does involve, at its absolute core of its meaning, a changing, a turning. In the Old Testament, most repentant passages use the Hebrew word for turn or return. And it's simply the idea that you're going in one direction and you turn and you go in the other direction. There is a changing of your mind. Not just, I wish I hadn't done that, but that's not the right way to do things. Changing of the mind. And therefore, I will commit to not doing them again. A change of action. And this change of action should be seen. That doesn't mean, though, that we never fail. Genuine repentance, a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of action, can often be uh, followed by more falling, more sin, and the need for further repentance. I don't know about you guys, but I'm still in the needing of repentance on a regular basis. And, you know, if any of you think you don't, then we can talk afterwards about your pride problem. But let's just presume for now that, that we all agree on this point, that we all need to be continually repenting. So repentance is, in one sense, isn't permanent and, and the end of all repenting, But there is a sense, certainly with regards to salvation, that repentance is a one-time event that we have now said we are no longer going this way, we're now going the other way. And I think what we need to understand, and I'm kind of moving slightly away from the text here, but I think this needs to be said in the broader context, that... That as Christians, you know, if you're on a diet and you say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat healthy now. 
and you're eating healthy and you're doing well and then you know you have a party maybe it's an anniversary or someone's cutting up wedding or a birthday and there's all this terrible food and you get triggered and you start eating that food again and, and then off you go and you start to put back on all the weight you, that you lost and before you know it you know you're drowning your sorrows about your weight gain in buckets of hagen dazs and bags of chips um, and you know, and, and then you, you were turned one way and now you've turned the other way. And then at some point, hopefully, before it gets too out of control, you're going to turn back again. But there's no guarantee, of course, that at a certain point you might turn back again. I think we need to understand that for the Christian, the act of repentance for the first time is something that ne- you never turn back from fully. In other words, we may well turn in our actions and need to repent and turn back again, but there is never a full returning. And the reason for that is that as Christians, when we repent and we turn from our sin, as we spoke about last week, through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the newness of life promised in him, that he gives to us his Holy Spirit, that we are enabled to live in a way that is pleasing to him. Now, those who are doing Romans with us on Wednesdays will be dealing with this in the coming months. But, you know, the Bible is very clear that the giving of the Holy Spirit transforms how we function, how we deal. As an unbeliever, we have a sin nature, and all we do is operate on that basis of that sin nature. Even when we do, quote-unquote, good things, we are still operating out of our sin nature. To be quite frank, we do as we wish, and sometimes it suits us to be nice. And so we can do what appears to be good things, even out of the basis of a sin nature. But once we become Christians and he gives us his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God indwells us and he empowers us to live. He gives us an entire new nature so that we can operate for the glory of God and not merely for our own benefit and our own interests. And so, you know, I don't want you to hear me talking about the need to continually to repent as if, you know, that we need to be rebaptized or we, 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 you know, we keep repenting and repenting so we maintain our Christianity. You know, at the end of the day, when God, when we repent and we turn to Christ and we trust in Him, then that repentance is something that is once for all time and that the Spirit that God gives to us He is the down payment, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, guaranteeing that God will complete the work of redemption in us. We certainly don't hold to the possibility that somebody can become a Christian and then at a later point no longer be a Christian. The Bible knows nothing of that. And so the repentance that John the Baptist is preaching in chapter 3 and verse 2 of Matthew that that baptism is a baptism that is of repentance. And that was clear a little bit. We won't be going that far today, but uh, he talked about in verse uh, 11, um, I baptize you with water for repentance. So the baptism that he is doing is a baptism that represents repentance. Very similar to, not the same, but very similar to Christian baptism today. A dying to sin and a raising to a new life. 
and John the Baptist is the one who is doing that and he is encouraging people to repent. Now, it's always good to repent. There's never a bad day to repent, okay? But why at this time is John the Baptist saying to people, listen up folks, you need to repent. And he's going to tell us why here. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the reason. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's a few things just to unpack about this. Firstly, the kingdom of heaven, which we'll talk about in a minute, it is at hand. Many more paraphrased translations will say the kingdom of heaven is near. And that's, that's very much the idea of what's being said here. If something is at hand, then it's kind of within reach. It's, it's there in your hand. Just, just reach out and take it. The kingdom of heaven is, is now here. And when, it, when the text says, is at hand, the way that the Greek's functioning here is it's saying that something has happened already and the effects of it are here in the present in John's day. In other words, something has happened so that now, in a way that it wasn't before, the kingdom of heaven is within your reach. So the implication of what John is saying is this, that you need to repent if you're going to have a place in the kingdom of heaven, that the repentance is required for the kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, what's the purpose in what he's saying here? And the fact that he is saying that you need to repent is going to become clear in a moment. But but for now, let's just let's see that from verse two that John is saying you need to repent because something that wasn't previously in your reach is now within your reach, and you're going to need to repent if you're going to want to take hold of that. Repentance is necessary for you to come into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the expression kingdom of heaven is unique to Matthew. Most of the other gospels, all the other gospels use the expression kingdom of God. Matthew, um, perhaps some have said that he's sensitive to his Jewish audience. We keep emphasizing here how he's writing to the Jews predominantly. And as such, um, they didn't like the word of the name of God being used out of place. And some have suggested that kingdom of heaven is a way of avoiding the word God. But then the word God's used elsewhere. So I'm not really sure I completely agree with that. But I think the idea is that what it's doing is it's painting this picture that this is a kingdom that is of another realm. It's a kingdom that is that is beyond us, beyond our understanding, and is associated with God in his separation, in his distance, in his holiness. It is not a kingdom that is of this world in the sense that it is not a kingdom that, you know, just like, you know, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the kingdom of the Babylonians. It's not just any old kingdom. And therefore, entry into this kingdom requires us repenting that we might be worthy of a kingdom that is a heavenly kingdom as opposed to a kingdom of this world. And that really, I think, is the emphasis on the expression kingdom of heaven is by using that phrase, it is emphasizing, and I think this is the Jewish context, it's emphasizing to the Jews, you are not worthy of it, apart from repentance. And and that's so important for us to get, because there is a pharisaical teaching that we're going to come back to again and again and again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. 
You're not go- you're gonna you're gonna end up learning a bunch of rabbinical Judaism as we go through Matthew, just because it's the context. But the number one thing that you will learn that the Pharisees taught that we will go come back to again and again and again is this: that the Pharisees said all Israel has a share of the kingdom to come. In other words, if you're a Jew, you're in the kingdom. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter how you do it, it wouldn't matter if you're good, bad, indifferent. All Israel has a share of the kingdom to come. They're a little bit like the the universalists of the day. They are the ones saying that just on the basis of your Jewish origin, you get to be in the kingdom. Which of course is contrary to all that the Old Testament was teaching. And so the, the gospel of Matthew is going to Jews who've been raised in that context... And, and he's, he's going to throughout this gospel again and again say, that's not true. That's not true. You need to repent and turn if you are going to have a place in the kingdom of heaven. Repentance is a prerequisite. The Pharisees believed this doctrine so strongly that it got them into all sorts of trouble later on. Because what happened is the early church, as you'll know, was initially almost exclusively Jewish. The first people saved at Pentecost were all Jews. And the church for the first decade was, was the vast majority of the church was Jewish. And the problem was is that the Pharisees don't want Christians to have a place in the kingdom of heaven. That's for Jewish people, right? But the problem is that all of these, all of these Christians were also Jews. And their own doctrine had basically given Christians a place in the kingdom which they didn't now want to say that they had. So they got around it by coming up with a new doctrine. And I, I kid you not, you can read this in the, the Mishnah, if you have the inclination. Um, but they taught that there was a foreskin angel. And that when, when, the, when the Christians died, if they had professed Christ, then the foreskin angel would reapply a foreskin after death, thus reversing their circumcision, thus pushing them outside of Israel, that they wouldn't have a place in the kingdom. There was much hatred for the, for the Christians amongst the Jews. And... Um, we're going to see a lot of that and how that originates with Christ. I know there are a lot of people today telling us, hey Christians, play nice. Don't ever get into squabbles. Don't ever fight with anybody. Don't ever disagree with anybody. Well, you know what? What would Jesus do? We're going to see. He gets into, he gets into lots of squabbles with the religious leaders. He has lots of fights with the Pharisees. In fact, sometimes he goes out of his way to have fights with them. Why? Because they're a brood of vipers, as we will see, in, in, um, not this time, but maybe next time. So, suffice to say that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom that is distinct and different from all other kingdoms. It is something that the Jews do not get to come into on the basis of their genetics, on the basis of birth, of earthly things, and therefore repentance is necessary for them to enter. The last thing I want to say about it is this, is when I say the kingdom is heavenly and not of this earth, what I do not mean is that it is a spiritual kingdom in some sort of ethereal sense, you know, in the sense of, oh, we're all part of the kingdom of God. And there's two reasons why so many in the church hear the expression kingdom of God and think that it just means being part of the church. There's two reasons for that. 
Reason number one is that when we hit Matthew 13, that is what it becomes. In Matthew 13, Jesus is going to, by means of parables, shift absolutely everything that he's doing. The ministry of Jesus is going to begin in this chapter. And the ministry of Jesus is essentially started ahead of time by John the Baptist. And the ministry is, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here we are, kingdom of heaven is available. Here it is. When Jesus has been baptized and he's been through the temptation in the wilderness, in chapter 4 we're going to see Jesus say exactly the same thing. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But when we get to chapter 13, the offer of the kingdom has been taken away. To the Jews as a whole. And chapter 12 makes that very clear. And we'll unpack all of that when we get there. But it's it's the central event in the middle of the book of Matthew. Where everything shifts. And until that time, Jesus is teaching very clearly in public places to all Jews. Telling them that the kingdom is available to them. And then, after the Jews have rejected his messiahship... He then starts teaching only to those who have faith. Only to those who have repented. And there will be a kingdom for them that is distinct from the kingdom that was being offered to all. Now we'll unpack more of that later. But because that becomes a reality later, and is our reality now... It's very easy for us to look at kingdom of heaven shorthand or kingdom of God in the shorthand and think that it just refers to being a Christian, being part of the universal church, being saved and that makes us part of the kingdom of God. But that's not the case at this point in history. I think the other reason that that has occurred is that um, one of the predominant understandings, ways of understanding the Bible in centuries past was our millennialism, which is an allegorizing of so much of scripture that, you know, you had back in the day the Greek philosopher Plato and he was, I'm summarizing here quite a lot, but he was basically saying physical realm, not good. Spiritual realm, hmm, good, you know, we like that. So in other words, the, the things of this earth are bad and the things of the heavenly realm are good. That was kind of Platoism, and that kind of went through much of Greek philosophy. And so um, there is then, uh, in the early church, Augustine comes along, and he was heavily influenced by Plato, and he did not like the idea that the, the Bible spoke of a coming kingdom, and that there would be feasting in this kingdom. I mean, feasting? I mean, what is this feasting? Drinking and eating and doing all those carnal things? Oh, dear me, we couldn't have that in the kingdom. No, the kingdom has to be a heavenly thing in the sense that it's not on this earth at all. And he allegorized so much of the scripture and that became um, really a predominant view for much of church history. It was always the understanding of the Catholic Church throughout its era. Then when the Reformation came along, they reformed the Catholic Church's Um, soteriology, their understanding of salvation, but there wasn't much reformation that was done of the Catholic Church's understanding of eschatology, end times, the kingdom of God and things like that. And so it took a while longer for that to get reformed. Suffice to say that when we approach the Bible, we always need to do so, 
not allegorizing away texts and spiritualizing away texts that are awkward, but allowing the author to tell us what they're trying to tell us in that context. Now, if you come to the concept of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, it is always, without exception, Every single reference, every single instance throughout the Old Testament, hundreds of times, it always refers to an earthly kingdom. Every time. We've completed this last year, the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we saw how Daniel says, hey, we currently have this kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, this is you, you're the head of gold. But there's another kingdom coming next, a kingdom of silver, the Medo-Persians. And Daniel prophesied that there would be another kingdom of the Greeks. There would be another kingdom that began with the Romans. A a kingdom of imperialism that kind of goes on really until this day. And he said, but eventually there is going to be a stone that strikes the statue and breaks it into pieces. And that stone will grow and become a mountain. And this is God's kingdom. The Messiah's kingdom. And, And Daniel speaks of the kingdom, you know, multiple times through his book. And, and by the, that time in the Old Testament, this is, in, this is incredibly well established. Daniel is not saying anything new when he says that God is going to have a kingdom. Hey, this land, Jerusalem, this promised land, this land is occupied now by the Babylonians. But it won't always be that way. There will be other Gentiles, meet Persians, Greeks, there will be other nations. But ultimately, the Jewish kingdom under the king, the Messiah will fill the whole earth. Nothing new about that. When David was told that he would have an eternal kingship in his line in 2 Samuel 7, that that then got developed in the Psalms. And in the Psalms we see, right at the beginning, Psalm 2, we see this promise that God has his anointed one, his anointed king, and that all of these enemies will be crushed and the king will establish his kingdom. And you better kiss the son. And take refuge in him. It's speaking of a king and a kingdom. And there is this king and this kingdom that's going to be established. And you go from Psalm 2, you go right the way through the Psalms, you go through the prophets, and you come all the way to the end of the prophets and to Daniel, and you go through all of this, and you are always seeing a kingdom that is a physical kingdom. Isaiah speaks about all of these nations that are going to go up to the mountain on the earth to Zion to worship the king in his temple in Zion, which is Jerusalem. And I think we need to understand that if we say that the kingdom of God is only a spiritual kingdom, we are ignoring the vast majority of references to the kingdom of God in the Bible. We are essentially calling God a liar, or at best saying that he is misrepresenting things. Because for thousands of years he spoke of a kingdom, well... Thousands, if you argue that the, the kind of the precursors to the specifics of the kingdom, but certainly for over a thousand years, there, are, there is talk of a kingdom. And that everybody understood that to be a literal kingdom with a literal king on a literal throne in Jerusalem and that that kingdom would cover the entire earth. That's what was understood and that's what was communicated. So when we come to the Gospels, what do we have for background? We don't have Ephesians, we don't have Romans, we don't even have Matthew 13 at this point. We're only in chapter 3. 
We have to read this in light of the Old Testament. The Jews were promised that a day was coming when the time of the Gentiles would come to an end and that they again would rule and reign in Jerusalem under one king who would be, we know from Isaiah, both man and God, born of a virgin, that the government would be upon his shoulders, his kingdom would have no end, that he would be a servant of God and of the people and he would redeem the people from their sins and he would be king and majestic because he was God incarnate. All of that is found in the book of Isaiah alone. And it is this king and this kingdom that is being spoken of. So why is John the Baptist saying something has happened now that hadn't previously happened? And because it has happened right here, right now, the kingdom of God is at hand. That is because the king is coming. And that's going to become really clear when we see what is said in verse 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And that is a quotation from Isaiah 40. I promised we'd be there. Let's turn there. Isaiah 40, page 969, if you've got a pew Bible in front of you, which you all should have nearby. Um... If you're not familiar, if you're new to us, if you're visiting, you will soon discover if you stay that uh, when we have an Old Testament quoted at, quoted in the New Testament, or perhaps it's just alluded to, there's some strong nudging, then we always go to the Old Testament, we always turn to that passage, we always look at that passage in its context, so that we fully understand why the author is quoting it. And so Isaiah 40 begins, comfort, comfort, oh my people. What we have in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, we taught through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah uh, here in our evening services a few years back. Um, We've not quite got around to finishing it yet, but we will at some point, God willing. But in those first 39 chapters, there was judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment. It was judgment heavy. It was not good news for the Jews. It was not good news for the Gentiles. The judgment of God was a central theme in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. And as we come to chapter 40, the general thrust of Isaiah changes of one of condemnation to one of redemption. It begins with this comfort. Comfort, same word that's used, Psalm 23, your rod and staff, comfort me. Speaking of how God is going to comfort his people. He's speaking now, Isaiah, towards the end of his life at a time when the people have been taken into captivity. Quite probably, certainly the early part of them have gone. And so he is giving them a message of comfort. That though they've been taken into captivity, this is not the end. This is not the end. And so it is. He says, comfort my people, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Call her out. Call, sorry, call out to her. That her warfare has been fulfilled. That her iniquity has been removed. That she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all of her sins. It's, I, I have to say, I love the legacy translation here. Most versions say, uh, speak gently or kindly or comfortingly to Jerusalem. But it literally says in the Hebrew, speak to the heart. Speak to the heart. 
This um, brings echoes. Don't turn there because I'll just do it for you real quick. But this brings echoes of Hosea. Remember, Matthew's quoted Hosea already. He's assuming the Jews are familiar with the flow and the thrust of Hosea. Um, Hosea 2.14 says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak to her heart. And then I will give her her vineyards from there. That the restoration promised to the northern kingdom of Israel in the book of Hosea, the promise was that God was going to speak to their heart and bring her into the wilderness. And then through the wilderness... There would come this time, from the wilderness would come this time where they could then be restored and God would speak to their heart and bring comfort and love to them. Now this is important. This is going to be important for Matthew for lots of reasons. Okay? In Hosea, we already saw when we did Matthew 2, in the book of Hosea, he had a very firm grasp on the fact that there was an exodus out of Egypt I called my son that was leading to another exodus. So they came out from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. Now, at the time of the prophets, they've been taken into captivity and they need a new exodus to a new promised land. That the kingdom is going to come after a final exodus. It's what all the prophets are looking forward to. It's what Matthew has already told us that Jesus is going to fulfill. And so the wilderness is part of that whole exodus thing. John the Baptist coming from the wilderness is no accident. Jesus being tempted in the wilderness is no accident. It's pointing us to these passages so that we know that these these ones, John and then Jesus, are coming from the wilderness. Because everything that John does, John does is is um is a forerunner of what is going to happen to Jesus. And we'll talk more about that next time. So, they're coming from the wilderness because God is going to take them through the wilderness and speak to their hearts and comfort them and then restore them. The the expression in verse 2 here, the warfare has been fulfilled, the iniquity has been removed, and that they have received from the hand of Yahweh double for their sins... Those three things, those three things summarize the rest of the book of Isaiah. Now most of you are familiar that in John's gospel, the first 18 verses is a prologue for the whole of the gospel. In Isaiah 40 verses 1 to 11 that Michael read for us this morning, that is your prologue for the remainder of Isaiah. In chapter 40 through to chapter 47, it deals with and unpacks the concept of the warfare being fulfilled and coming to an end. And then in chapter 40, oh sorry, to 48. In chapter 49 to 57, it deals with the iniquity being pardoned. That's obviously where we have that Isaiah 53 and the, that famous passage concerning Christ dying for our sins is found there. It deals with iniquity being pardoned. And then in the last section, um, from 58 to the end, it deals with them receiving double for their sins. Israel always receives double for her sins. This is true Old and New Testament. Those of us who've been doing Romans, what have we seen about the Jews? That the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
And then he specifically says in chapter 2 that condemnation is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is a double portion of blessing and a double portion of condemnation. They are more, more heavily condemned and more heavily rewarded. Why? Because of Exodus 4.22. In Exodus 4.22 that we've already referenced when we're looking at the Hosea quote in chapter 2. That Israel is God's firstborn. And what happens with the firstborns? Double. The sacrifice for the firstborn was double, right the way through scripture. Israel was God's firstborn, and thus it receives double. Double for its sins. Jeremiah 16 verse 8, Zechariah 9 verse 12. Always double for the sins of Israel. And that's dealt with in the latter heart of uh, of that whole section of Isaiah. So this is giving us the outline that God is going to complete all the warfare, the fulfilling of that against Israel. This sin is going to be removed. There's going to be genuine repentance that res- results in the removal of sin and they will have received double punishment from the hand of Yahweh and thus everything is complete. There's the summary of what's going on in Isaiah. And then we have verse 3. How does this ending of all things begin. Look at verse 3. A voice is calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And that's what has been quoted in Matthew's gospel. There's a couple of little changes. In in the Hebrew, it is, um, it says, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. So the voice is calling, hey, Here's my voice, this is what I'm saying. In the wilderness, you need to prepare a way for Yahweh. In Matthew, it's saying, there's a voice in the wilderness, and that voice is saying, prepare the way for Yahweh. And you know, there's reasons why they're different. It's to do with the Greek translation of the Hebrew that Matthew's quoting from, and what have you. But it doesn't make a lot of difference, because not only does the way have to be prepared in the wilderness, but the one who's calling is in the wilderness as well. So either way, it doesn't really matter too much. Um, but what is happening is that there is this there is this voice crying, and the voice is saying, you need to prepare a way. You need to make the road smooth and make a desert highway for our God. And this is clarified in verse 4. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. I I often, um, over the years, have have run and trained in the mountains in the Verdugos behind us. And there are these main uh, trails going up the Verdugos that are called fire roads. Because they're big enough for a fire truck to go up for when we have you know, um, wilderness fires and brush fires up there. And if you go to any other part of the mountains behind us, you know, it, you can't just get up there, you know. It's, you have to be scrambling to try and get up and there's no easy way. But these fire roads are astonishing because what they've done is they've kind of dug into the mountain and made a road out of the side of it. What they've essentially done is taken this uneven terrain and flattened it out so that access can be given. And that is essentially what's being spoken of here. That what would happen in those days is if a king was coming, or some dignitary was coming, that a road would be made freshly. And that road would get rid of all, you know, we're not talking about tarmac here, we're not talking about, you know, paving it in that kind of way. So we're talking about there, there being all these rocks and stones. So everything is made smooth, the big rocks are removed. 
so that when they travel through, their journey is as smooth as possible. We don't want them going up and down. We don't want them stumbling. We don't want the rocks and stuff. We want a smooth, flat road to make it as easy as possible for this one to arrive. That is what is going on here. And so the voice is saying, there needs to be a smooth preparation, a nice, smooth, clear road moved without hindrance so that the dignitary, the king, might arrive. Every valley lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the rough ground become a plain, the rugged terrain be a broad valley. Verse 5, then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. You see this? This is the picture Isaiah is painting. Get ready folks, make a road. There's a voice, and the Jews would have understood this as the back call, the voice from heaven. Which, by the way, we're going to have in a little bit of Matthew, a voice from heaven. But here's a voice from heaven saying, get everything ready, clear the road. Because once this road is prepared and ready, what is going to happen? God's going to show up. Because the glory of God is going to be revealed to all flesh. And they will, everybody will see it together. How do we know that this such an incredible, radical thing is going to happen? For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. And so the voice then calls out in verse 6. And he answered and said, what shall I call out? And he says, all flesh is grass. And its loving kindness is like the flower of the field. And the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. It's an incredible expression, by the way, just in passing. The breath of Yahweh is often associated, normally associated with giving life. Here, the breath of Yahweh is taking away life. Humankind is like grass. We burn, we wither, we're like flowers in that we fade. Surely people are grass. So how can such a thing be done? How can we be assured that this is going to happen when we are so weak and frail? God is saying he'll do these things, but surely we're just going to sin again and again and again, as Israel has sinned so many times before. And the assurance comes in verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. That's us, folks. But the word of God stands forever. God says, I'm going to do it. He is going to do it. God says, I'm going to make a kingdom. Don't have to spiritualize it. Don't have to allegorize it. He's going to do it. The word of God stands forever. And so in verse 9, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. So there's a command here to Israel to get up and to tell everyone the news. Raise your voice powerfully, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Raise it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. This is what you're doing. You've prepared a way and the glory of God's going to come and reveal himself to all flesh. And so what's Jerusalem got to do? Jerusalem's got to stand up and say, look, behold God. Behold, Yahweh will come with strength, with his ruling arm, his arm ruling for him. His reward is with him. His recompense is before him. This is going to be expanded in, in chapter 59, as we saw last Sunday. But God is the only one able to save. He will accomplish salvation. And like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. 
And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. The comfort of God to his people. The declaration, behold your God, here he comes. And how is all of this this promise going to come? Because God is going to arrive and a highway needs to be prepared for him to arrive on. That's the context of Isaiah 40. Should we shift back to Matthew? Matthew 3. This is the one that referred to by Isaiah. Saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. It's as if what Matthew is doing is he's saying that voice is not just a voice from heaven, but John the Baptist is vocalizing that voice. And he is saying, behold your God, he's coming. Get things ready. Clear the path. Make everything smooth. Flatten. Lift up. Do what needs to be done. Get things ready because he's coming. Your king is coming. Behold your God. And by the way, Isaiah 40 is yet another passage in Isaiah that is talking about the king coming, physically the king coming. And yet the king, when he comes, you get to say, behold your God. Because he is God as well as man. And that is the ministry of John the Baptist. He is saying, let's get things ready. If you want a part of his kingdom, if you want to be one who will be in his kingdom, you need to kiss the son and take refuge in him. You need to repent and turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Now, they don't have the same gospel that we have in its entirety. Because they don't have... The understanding that Christ is going to die for their sins, he's raised from the dead, which we trust in today. But what they are doing is they're trusting in Christ. They are basically waiting for John the Baptist to say to them, here he is, behold your God. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is going to do a bit later when he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold your God, the Lamb of God. Where does that Lamb come from? Well, we have the shepherding at the end of Isaiah 40. And as we see throughout the Bible, the Messiah is both shepherd and sacrificial lamb. And so, John is preparing a way for people to come to Christ. It is my understanding and my belief, as I look through the remainder of Scripture, that every time John the Baptist baptized people, that those people... When he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that they follow Jesus. That John the Baptist had a ministry where his ministry was not about him at all. His ministry was about Christ. He was preparing the way for Christ's ministry. He was saying to them, the king is about to come and he is going to establish his kingdom. And it is there and it's ready for you to take Let's get ready. Let's prepare the way. John is not, in a sense, preparing the way himself. Although I guess in another way he is. He's the voice saying, we need to prepare, Israel. We need to prepare. Because our king is here. Behold your God. He's come to establish his kingdom. Here it is. This is what we've waited for. And 
And Israel has to repent. And I believe that every single one of those people who repented, they ended up following Jesus. We see it later in Matthew's Gospel, which we'll mention as we come to it. And we also see it in the book of Acts. Years later, there were disciples of John the Baptist. I think it's Acts 18 or 19. Who, uh, who'd wandered off and they didn't really know anything had been going on and, with Jesus. And when the Messiah was pointed out to them, they decided to follow him as well. Why? Why did John the Baptist have a 100% success rate in the Bible? Because everybody who genuinely repented was saved. Now, I think there would be people who came for repentance who maybe weren't genuine. It happens. But if, if they genuinely repented and got baptized because they trusted in the message of John that the Messiah was coming, then they were saved. Because as Paul tells us in the New Testament, salvation was always on the basis of faith. And faith alone. And their repentance and turning from sin, and turning in this case to the coming Messiah, was sufficient for salvation. And so they were able to be saved. And then Jesus tells us later in his Gospels, that my sheep know my voice. And they are called And when Christ comes, they see him, they recognize him, they know him, they know that's him, and they follow him. They don't always understand him. (laughs) Like Peter. Peter's like, man, you say some tough stuff. And he says, well, you're going to go as well? He says, where else shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. Not complete understanding, but complete salvation. And so I think that John the Baptist, all those who repented for their sins... They were truly saved, and so they ended up following Jesus. But unfortunately for Israel, the vast majority of Israel did not get baptized. What we're going to see next time, as we come back to this, is John's response to the Pharisees and Sadducees showing up. You brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> you know, I think we all try and be winsome, don't we? You know, well, you know, you really should consider Jesus. I mean, here are people showing up to a baptism. People have been baptized for forgiveness. And he's like, what are you guys doing here? You're not repenting. You shouldn't be here. This isn't for you. This is for people who repent. And he warns them of the judgment to come for them. And so as we come and as we look at that, we'll see the response of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And unfortunately for Israel, Israel had a leadership complex. I've told you guys so many times over the years, you must never become pastor parrots. You all know what pastor parrots are? Pastor says this, pastor says that. Hey, why do you believe this, so-and-so? Pastor says this, pastor says that. doesn't matter what I say. I'm just a man like you. What matters is what the Bible says. So in teaching you here week by week, I'm trying to say to you, have a look at the text. This is what I'm seeing. See it for yourself. And, and I'm hoping to, that you will come to the same conclusions in a, insofar as I'm right. And I hope that if I'm wrong, you don't agree with me. But I don't want you just to copy me verbatim as if, well, he said it, so it has to be right. He knows more than me. Newsflash, there's people out there who know more than me. And they often disagree with me. 
So, you know, we, we, we're trying to pursue the truth together. But so many people have leadership complexes, they just do as they're told. You know, didn't we see that the last two years? <laughs> Put on your mask, lock yourself down, do as you're told. No questions, no, no pushback, just do as you're told. People just tend to do as they're told. And that's what Israel were like. So the Pharisees and Sadducees did, ne- did not repent. The leadership did not repent. And as a result of that, Israel did not repent. And everything now from chapter 3 verse 1 through to the end of chapter 12 is building up to the moment that the Pharisees and Sadducees come to their final conclusion. Who is this one? Is he the son of God? Is he the Messiah? Is he the promised king? Has he come to establish the kingdom? Is that who he is? Surely he's the son of God. He casts out demons. He does signs and wonders and miracles. Surely this is him. And the Pharisees and Sadducees said, he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And in that conclusion, they damned Israel. To generation after generation after generation after generation of blindness. A blindness that still sits upon the nation of Israel to this day. So that's what we've got to come. All of this. But for now, we see John the Baptist coming and saying, essentially, get ready. Your king is coming. The king is coming and he's offering you the kingdom. Now, quick news flash. I know there's been elections and stuff's going on. They said there'd be a red wave. It didn't really happen. And some of the results still aren't in and all of that kind of stuff. But I think we know that Jesus is not ruling and reigning on the throne in the temple in Jerusalem. We're pretty we're clear on that, right? That hasn't happened yet. So we've kind of got it. We, we can do a spoiler alert here because I think we know the ending. We have hindsight. And we know that the kingdom is at hand. It's offered. But the offer of the kingdom was not taken up. Now some people will say, oh, you know, you're making, you're making it sound like the, the, the kingdom of heaven that we have today and that the, the ministry of the church is almost like a, in parentheses, it's sort of an, almost an aside. No, 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 no. God knew that Adam would, and Eve would sit in the garden and he allowed, created them anyway. He knew that mankind would turn from him and he'd have to flood the world, but it happened anyway. He knew that they would turn against him again at Babel. And he would have to raise up Abraham. And he knew that when the kingdom was offered, they would turn it down. And he knew what he was going to do. There's no surprises. There's no parentheses. This is just part of the outworking of the plan of God. And so the earthly kingdom did not come about because the people to whom it was offered did not prepare themselves as John had told them to and did not repent And this really, as we go into the passage that we'll be in next time as we conclude this, this is really the message of John. You have two options here. Repent and be part of God's plan and his kingdom. And for those who did repent, they are in the kingdom of God, but just not in the way that was originally promised. That will still happen. God promised it. It's there in the Old Testament. It will happen one day, but not yet. But they are experiencing the kingdom of God in the sense that we are. That we are part of his kingdom. We've been received in, a, in the spiritual realm. That's something that kicks off in Matthew 13. 
But for those who don't repent, for those who don't worry about the fact that Jesus is coming, there is fire. And there's only those two options. Repent or fire. And we'll unpack this thoroughly next time. But he talks at the end of verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Oh, that we would be his wheat that he gathers into the barn. That we would be part of his harvest. That we would repent and that we would take refuge in him. Because he's coming. He's coming one day to establish his kingdom. He won't be asking permission this time. He won't be offering it this time. He'll just be showing up, destroying his enemies, conquering by his hand alone. Isaiah 63, who is this who comes from Edom with blood in his hands? Blood on his garments, rather. There was no one to help me, he says. It is I who is able to save. He will come and he will establish his kingdom. But before that, we will see him. So many, all of us probably, will see him. The day is going to come. This, this, I'll be careful what I say because I need to teach the text and nothing else. I'm trying not to give my opinions and other stuff. But what I can tell you, and I'll be careful with my words here, what I can tell you is in the month of July, that in Europe as a whole, there was a 16% increase in typical death rate. 16% of increased mortality. In Spain, it was nearly, was 30 something percent, nearly 40%. There are more people dying right now than there were in recent years. You can attribute that to whatever you like. That's not, there's no place in the pulpit for that. Suffice to say that we're seeing lots of people dropping down dead who are younger and you might not expect it. People are dying suddenly. And, Life is a breath. One of the weirdest things about getting old is realizing how short life is. I just, you know, I turned 50 this year. And I, it's just bizarre to me that I look at my kids and I remember being their age and the stuff that they did, that I did at that age like it was yesterday. It was just like yesterday. Sometimes I get a little glimpse of myself and like in a mirror. I, I look at my hands and I see the, like, the wrinkles coming, you know, and I'm like, man, who's that? You know? And it just creeps up on you. And 10 years ago seems like yesterday. And 20 years ago seems not, like not that long. And we get older and you know, some of you recently have suffered loss. Life is a breath. It's a breath. I know you guys don't use kettles as much as we do in England. It's part of our, it's part of our British constitution, if we have one, is when someone shows up at your house, you put the kettle on. It's just, just how it is. I'm not so good. Jen is great at that. Just kettle, someone's here. Kettle on. I got rebuked the other day. Somebody came and Jen wasn't around. She showed up later and said, did you not put the kettle on? That's what we do. So we put the kettle on. The kettle goes on. It comes to a point. It boils. The steam comes up. And then the, the kettle automatically clicks off. Click. And then that steam just goes just fades away. That's our life, right there. You get a few years, you get a few breaths, 
get a few moments of time. And we either choose to pour our life out for the King, to prepare the way for Him, to say to the world, Behold your God! Or else when we see Him, He will throw us into unquenchable fire. There is no middle ground. There is no halfway house. There is no purgatory for people who are mostly good. There is no second chance. The king is coming. Where do you stand? Do you kiss the son? Do you bow before him? Do you accept his ways, his purposes? Do you embrace those things that you don't fully understand? And say, I don't understand, Lord, but I trust you anyway. Or do you reject him and say, I cannot worship a God who is not who I want him to be exactly? John the Baptist came and said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ is coming for us all. We must repent and be ready. And when we have repented, then we join the chorus with John and we say, prepare, get ready, behold your God. Christ has come. Bow before him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Let's pray. Father, we we come before you now, Lord, in prayer. If any one of us here has not truly repented, if we have not bowed the knee before you and your word, accepted what you say, put aside our frustrations, our agreement with you, that you are not as we would make you. If we have not truly bowed before your Son, trusted in him alone for our salvation, I pray that we would bow the knee even now. And Lord, for those who have, I pray, Lord, that we would see our lives like a breath and understand that the time is short and that we would join the chorus with John, declaring to the world, your son is coming. Behold your God. Give us courage where we need courage. Give us compassion where we need compassion. And give us opportunities that each of us might pour our lives out in service to you, that we might further your kingdom, both in the church today now and the final kingdom that will come where you will reign forever. Amen.